there were several audio disruptions due to conductivity issues with an audio cable connector. On top of that, our earset microphone wire intermittently failed. These items are being replaced. We appreciate your understanding. Number 120, Conversations with Yogananda. I remember a young pair who attended a class series I gave in Phoenix, Arizona. They were the most beautiful couple I have ever seen, and that is saying a lot. Of course, attraction to beauty is measured more or less by a person's own blindness. A mother had a very ugly son and tried to enter him in a beauty contest. The judge laughed at her, whereupon she answered, You fool, this is the most beautiful child in the world. If I were judging this contest, I would give him the prize without even bothering to look at another. Still, by the standards of uh, modern blindness, these two young people were beautiful. The whole class enjoyed seeing them. They seemed so perfect, as if blown together by the breeze of their love. It's quite a statement from Master, who's usually not nearly so willing to say so much about human life and human love. Usually it's the bleached bones of the lovers. The moon laughs at them anyway. (laughs) One day after class, I called them to me. I'd known they had very little money, but I had just learned that they'd sold their little car so they could take the classes. My practice in those days was to charge a little money for the classes. The money went to the work. But now that I'd heard about their sacrifice, I told them I wanted to return their money. It took me a whole hour to persuade them to accept it. It's such a, isn't that a beautiful scene, the whole thing? Yeah. I mean, there they were, and they'd given up so much, and then he's trying to give it back to them. And this what, when would this have been? In the 1920s, 30s, sometime in there. The boy then said to me, May I ask you a favor? Please bless me that I find a job. I told him he would find one right away, and he did. But then I said something else to them both. Everybody in this class, I said, envies you your love. I don't envy you. For the love in my heart is a hundred times greater than what I see expressed in your eyes. I'd like to see you develop toward the experience of ever deeper divine love. In a year's time, I plan to return to Phoenix. I would like to see if your love is still so strong then as it is now. God Almighty. (laughs) Yeah. There they are, and here's their one they must have considered close to their guru, at least he was so important to them. I did come back the next year and tried to look them up. It wasn't easy, but I managed at last to locate the boy He was working in a store. When he saw me, he came out with me to the car and stood beside it. He looked worn out. It saddened me to see him like that. His back was bent instead of straight like a yogi's. In a weak voice, he said, I still believe in God. What is the matter with you? I cried. I expected to find you communing with God daily. He answered, I'm I'm working so hard. I hardly have time for anything else. He took me to his home. They'd had a child, and his wife was expecting another one. I said, I miss the luster that I used to see in your eyes. I felt sorry for them and gave them a mental and spiritual shaking. 
As I was leaving, I saw in their eyes again a glimmer of their former love and happiness. They promised me to start meditating again. But just see how easy it is to let the world creep in and steal your happiness. Tread the spiritual path very carefully. Delusion awaits you around every corner, hoping to seize you. Oh, that is a chilling, let's, you know, part of me just says, let's just turn the page, but maybe we should stay here for a few minutes. You know, it's, um, I remember see, being in the grocery store, and there was a, a mother and daughter in the grocery store. Um, people buy very, very bad food. You know, we were having a discussion this morning about vaccinations and this whole um, thing in California against vaccinations and, uh, excuse me, compelling vaccinations, the opposite. And then I was talking to someone about what kind of food so many people feed their children. You know, just feed them so much poison and don't even think about it. And everybody's, it's just so crazy what's really going on right now. So what was I saying? Oh, yes, I was in the grocery store and there was this uh, daughter and mother, you could tell by the way they interacted and all just by the way they looked. And the mother was absolutely used up. She couldn't have been, I don't think she was more than 40, but she looked done. She was, uh, you know, not only was she overweight, but she, had con- she was disintegrated, like people get. You know, just nothing. There was no dignity whatsoever in her appearance. It wasn't really that she was carrying too much weight, is that she, had just, she just had no dignity. And her, she just looked ruined in her face. Her daughter was right next to her. Her daughter was like in her teens, maybe late teens, completely dressed to the nines. You could see how much time she'd spent making herself beautiful. She had, still had a really slim body, and she was very sexy in the way she was dressed. But you could see they were the same. You could see exactly that this was the mother and this was the daughter. And you could see that the consciousness that was manifesting through the mother was exactly the same consciousness as the daughter. And it was just, you know, no time at all. Because there was, there was nothing in her except the lack of years in that body that made that body look in any way more attractive than the other body looked. And it was just, I mean, I've never forgotten it. It was just chilling, absolutely chilling. Another scene I saw, which was really, I didn't know what to think about this. There was this family, looked like a mother and father and maybe a, aunt or something like that, three or four of the same generation. And these people were really overweight. I mean, really, you know, this is a different story, just on a street. Just, they were, they were just very large people. And they had one child that they all just adored. And of course, the child was really little, you know, because she was really little. The, the little girl was about three. And you had these three very oversized adults all focusing on this little tiny thing. And I just thought to myself, how long? You know, how long before what she's been born into, what she chose to associate with, is going to really start turning in, her into what she's associating with? And it's, it's one of the, just the oddest things about, I mean, we're all, we're all prone to it. When, you're, when you are what you are, you just think you're going to stay that way. And people don't just like Master was saying, these were a beautiful couple, but he didn't envy them because he could see the thread behind it. And he understood that everything can just shift in a moment because all we are is what we're tuning into. All we are is what we're allowing to flow through us. And if you change what's flowing through you, you completely change. 
I, I've had fun standing, fun, that's been in, intriguing, standing in front of a mirror and just practicing, you know, if I had certain other habitual attitudes, what other appearance could have this face have? You know, if you, if you scowl or look sad or look angry or all the different things you can look, you could just, you just see how the very same features will form a very... You know, very interesting expre- uh, expression. So I remarked to someone once, he said, you know, you're beautiful or not beautiful. He was talking about the physical appearance of a woman, your face is, depending entirely on what's, what your consciousness is. It, it, he said it wasn't true of everyone. He said, except your face is just completely dependent. Whatever thoughts are going through you, that's the magnetism. He said other faces, and he mentioned a couple of other people, sort of have a classic look that always looks attractive just because of the way it's shaped and made but yours is entirely dependent on your consciousness. I thought, well, that's good, because you can just sort of know then when you look at photographs, like, who am I and where am I at this point? It, and uh, it, nothing about it can be taken for granted. That's also what Master was saying, because today you're one reality, but if tomorrow you shift, tomorrow you shift. I don't mean you should be paranoid. And the other side of that is, it doesn't matter how far out you get, you can always turn around. I remember at one point in my spiritual life back in the 70s, I just got really out of tune. I don't exactly know how it started, but I just kept making the wrong decision until I just was not where I wanted to be. I was just out of sorts with my own life. And uh, I, had, uh, I, was, I was isolated from, the, from everyone because of what I'd been doing. Why, I don't remember. That's the, it's now that I think about it. I can't think about how I got there. But I remember feeling it, and I remember becoming a little upset about it. And then there's just a very simple thought came to me. You, you know, you chose a direction and walked that way. And if you don't like where you've ended up, just turn around and walk back. And I mean, symbolically, just turn around and walk back. And I remember having that thought, and I was in the grocery store in Nevada City, and there was a couple of people there, and they weren't my favorite people, particularly, and because I was feeling contractive and had... That was, I was feeling contractive. I was feeling contractive all the time. I didn't want to put out energy. I didn't want to think about anybody but myself. And so I saw them and I thought, I don't like them that much. You know how you are in a grocery store? You pretend you don't see them. You come into the restaurant and you see someone, you pretend they're not there because, oh, what a surprise, I didn't see you sitting there because you don't want to relate. So I kind of turned so I didn't have to see them and I started to go another way. And then I realized this, you know, this is precisely what has put you into this state, which is when you have the opportunity to give, instead you don't. So I just, I turned around and I walked right back into it. And it was, two things happened. One, I enjoyed talking to them. I'd never much liked them before, but now I did. And for many years after, there was always this sort of extra special connection between us. And everything changed right then. I mean, it was just like just one move, one resistance to instead of just going, what I'll call it, the undertow that was just taking me to a stage in life I didn't want to be in. So many things were learned at the same time. One is, if you're, if you're swimming upstream, which is if you're going against the divine current, you know, you're moving, but as soon as you move in the direction of, of spiritual expansion, then you're going with the flow. You can call it the grace of God or whatever you want to call it, but when you're going in the direction that is expansive for you spiritually, then the power of the universe will help you. 
The power of Satan will help you the other direction too, so it's not foolproof. But you know, it, you, get, you get where you're going faster than you think you're going to. The, well, the way Master put it is, uh, karma doesn't work the same for the devotee. That's actually what he said. He said, because the grace of God is in there. And your sincere spiritual aspiration is in there. And so it, it's not, the equation is not always even. It, it's like, uh, when I, m- I remember being in New York uh, when I was in my late teens. And, you know, it, it, New York is, when I, I was there again, it's just such a place. I know that was like profound, but it, it's such a place. It has its own reality. And for the first time I was there when I was 19, I just had never seen anything like it. And it was very hard and aggressive, being a California girl, it was really. But I remember being in the grocery store and watching the guy weigh my vegetables, and I, I watched him push his thumb down to make it weigh more. I was, I was too timid uh, at that moment to, you know, to say, you, could, you know, what the heck are you doing? But he just leaned on it with his thumb. Now, what is that point? Oh, yes, I, and the other way, in the positive way, I sort of feel when the, the karmic balance is tipped away from what you want it to be, too much weight on the wrong side. If you try to put any weight on this side, God puts his thumb on it. <laughs> and he'll push it down a little. So you've only put a little bit of weight there, but he'll push on it. You know, he'll just make it tip in the right direction, even though you haven't actually done it. But the, uh, as Swami said, God doesn't matter your shortcomings. Master said, all that matters. But God... God doesn't mind your shortcomings, but he doesn't like your indifference. So when you're indifferent to what is divinely appropriate, that's, that God can't help you. He can't help you because you're not asking him to do anything you would want to do. <laughs> it's the only way I can say it. If you're working against your own interests as your true friend, how is God going to help you work against your own interests? I mean, although it gets more complicated than that, but you understand. But when you turn in favor of where your happiness lies, then the angels come and help you. Because we're surrounded, apparently, all the time by lots of folks who want to help us. I remember one of those death and return stories that was this one I loved. The man died. I don't even remember who told me this, who told this one or what context. But he found himself in a stadium full of people. He said it was like a huge sporting event. And he died and he came into the center of the field. It was row upon row. He said just countless numbers. And they were all cheering for him. That's how he put it. He just realized that there was this angelic host, really a a myriad of angels, that were all cheering for him. And it, it wasn't anything special. He just realized that that is the way creation works. There's this enormous light force that's always wanting us to move toward the light. We're just not aware of it. When Happy Winningham, um, who died of AIDS, actually now quite a number of years ago, but she had several um, near-death or death-and-return experiences because she had lots of different... Did I just lose the sound again? But so many people are so sad and just don't have anyone to love them. We're very spoiled in our community because so many people love it. We all love each other a lot. But that's very tough. It's very tough. Remember Mother Teresa of Calcutta when she was founding her missionary group here? And she said, uh, you know, 
I don't, I've never seen such poverty anywhere in the world as I see in this country. And it's a poverty of loneliness and isolation, she said. It's, people in the poor parts of the world are so much better off than they are here. Remember she tried to start in San Francisco? And they insisted that she had to install hot water and elevators. And she actually brushed the dust of San Francisco off her feet and walked away. Whoa. Because... Oh, no, because they just... She said, how will people get up and down the stairs? She says, the, the sisters will carry them. Well, you have to have hot water. She said, no, we don't have hot water. We have cold water. And they just... They wouldn't do it. But imagine, you know, she, a saint wanted to establish a house here and they couldn't do it. But, you know, those are the kinds of things that... All right. Happy Winningham. Okay, so... We were talking about Happy and thousands of people calling her name. So let me try to remember where we were. Oh, we were talking about how easily... That's what Master was talking about. So here we have Master in this position. And in one year's time, of course, she has one baby and she's pregnant with another. You know, this is... um, This is the peculiarity of life, is that I remember thinking about how unspontaneous and uninteresting my parents were at a certain point. And I realized that they'd probably been a lot more spontaneous, a lot more interesting before the kids were born. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, and, I, and I realized that the reason that they were the way they were was because of their devotion to take caring, taking care of us. And I realized how incredibly unfair that was. But it was the truth of it. And, you know, as I got to be a young adult and and understood, which you don't understand as a child, you just take it the way it is. Your parents are born to take care of you. And even the mere concept that they might actually be living beings with their own life just doesn't cross your mind. (laughs) I remember this little girl who was born into this community. She was such an old woman. She remained an old woman until she was about four she just did not ever have a child's demeanor or a child's face. I remember there was a, when Swami was visiting the school here once, there was a little Indian boy, and he was like five, and Swami just looked right at him and said, you're not a little boy, you're an old man. Clearly, you're an old man. <laughs> and he just did. He just, on his little body, and he didn't even dispute it, because you could see, he just remembered himself. He was, he was Indian. He looked like a, a banker, you know, from some... Indian, and just he looked very um, nice, but shrewd and capable, and he just didn't look anything like a child. It was so, it was so funny. But this little girl, she didn't, look, she didn't look like a child. She looked like actually like a rather annoyed old woman. She looked all the time like you know they're slow with my tea this morning, and why don't they hear the bell? And just like I was being about the microphones, just crabby. And finally, she just lightened up, and I, I said to her parents. Uh, I said, she's, she's looking like a child now instead of like an imperious old woman wondering where the servants are. And the parents began to laugh and laugh. He said, because she's found her servants, her mother and me, <laughs> just like that. But it was true. You know, she'd gotten them trained and they were now behaving properly. And so she was relaxing into being a child instead of like holding on to that. But, oh, oh yes, it was about children and how, how life turns out. Swamiji was fond of giving this chilling statement that somebody did a um, somebody did a survey once to ask people what their happiest time of life was, and a surprising number of people said their high school prom. And Swami said, "Well, it's obvious because at that point, you imagine that whatever you want, you're going to get, 
and you have a very, very little concept of the relationship between the effort required and the result attained. So you, you just you can just wish for what you want. But he said about 40 is when the reality of things begins to set in with people, which is interestingly, Swamiji said, um, it's much better if you can come on the path before you're 40. It's harder. It's not by any means impossible, but it's harder after 40 because so much of, of your attitude toward life is set by that point. We have many fine examples in our communities of people who come after the age of 40, so it's not a curse. But it's also true that after the age of 40, as Swami said, you begin to get the face that you deserve rather than the one that you just were born with and it's so... I will never take this for granted. I will never be casual about this. I will always value this. I will always act in accordance with these high ideals. And if I ever find myself having slipped away, I will immediately turn in the right direction and put out whatever energy I can to go toward it. Because it, it takes continuous effort. Life, just like Master said, life just takes you away. She's pregnant with one baby. She has a second baby. He has to work all the time to get barely get enough money. What's the first thing to go? I just don't have time to meditate anymore. But as soon as you begin to lose that inner connection, everything else goes to pieces too. You have to have, you have to have self-honesty on the spiritual path is the single most important quality. How am I feeling? Why am I feeling that way? You know, what have I done? And whether I've become neglectful or casual or have wrong attitudes or crabby, whatever it might be, um, or I'm getting a karmic debt being paid by something happening to me that I don't know what caused it, but nonetheless, if it came to me, it must be what I deserve. You know, how am I responding? What am I building? I, when I was in 18 and I was first exposed to the teachings of self-realization, one of the three principles that completely changed my life, today is the result of yesterday, tomorrow is the result of today. Here we're sitting, do I like what I'm experiencing? And it's usually impossible to completely transform yourself in one instant. In theory, it's possible, but in fact, inertia, energy, it's difficult but am I doing something today that's going to create what I want tomorrow? And I, I think of that moment in the store where, oh, there it is, I'm right on the cusp. Do I contract or do I expand? And just that little thing which seems so small in itself, it, I mean, it was nothing. It was, do I pretend I don't see them or do I talk to them? It couldn't have been smaller, but it was a, it was a sea change from heading one direction to heading the other. Of such... Of such things are the entire spiritual path made. If it were big and dramatic, it would be much easier. You actually lose it a couple of minutes at a time. One crabby thought here, one uh, lazy action here, one contractive habit there, one, you know, like this. I remember these two women, they, they were in the community at that time, and they're both long gone, so you can't even guess. But one of them had a very critical mind, extremely critical mind, and the other one was sensitive to the point of paranoia. But as they say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't after you. <laughs> so, in her case, the one with the critical mind was in the, in the community kitchen, and the oversensitive one walked in. The oh, one with the overcritical mind said, hello. 
the oversensitive person started screaming at her for always just being down on her and she just really had it and she wasn't going to put up with it anymore. Eventually, I got called into it. The one who had merely said hello fiercely and stoutly defended herself, but I knew her and I also knew she didn't like this other woman. I said, when you said hello, what were you thinking? And of course, she was thinking a whole host of negative thoughts. And the other woman thought she'd spoken them because the whole vibration just went out to her. And so what she felt was criticized, demeaned, disliked, and she wasn't going to put up with it anymore. But, whoa, that was hard to unravel. You know, I, I was pretty sure I knew what had happened right away because I knew the players. But it's like, what are we actually doing? Not what are we pretending, but what are we actually doing? And even if we're in the throes of terrible habits, you, you just look and you see, what can I actually do? Consciousness they can express is a dog or a lizard or a parrot or whatever they happen to be able to express. That's the limit of their consciousness, but it's still the same spectrum. And he said, they just look all the same to me, just um, souls in delusion struggling for freedom. And I realize if you think of it like that, and if you think that's God's perspective on us, we're just souls in delusion struggling for freedom, those thousands of people are cheering, those thousands of beings in the, in the stadium, they're cheering everyone. Even if you're just a, a miserable cad over here. And there's that story in the, uh, it's a traditional story in India about the woman who was just so selfish and mean. And um, she w- when she died and she went to try to get into heaven, in the book of light, there wasn't one good deed. And she, but she was a very um, determined, crabby old woman, and she just wouldn't take no for an answer, and she kept making him turn the pages on the book of life. And finally there was a tiny footnote that at one time she'd given a carrot to a beggar because the carrot had a worm in it. And so there, there was one small good deed that she'd done. That's how the story is told. And so that magic carrot materialized, and she was able to hold on to the magic carrot and rise up to a higher plane of consciousness because compared to her, she had done one good thing. But the murderer, as I've, I've said it this way, with the murderer who kills the parents but spares the baby out of mercy, it's not a very high level of evolution, but he's moved forward. You know, it's just, it's the, it's the direction you're facing. In a very real sense, we can't really help where we are. It's just what we did in the past, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. So now we're standing. But what, once we become conscious of at least the possibility of our own decisions influencing our own destiny, then a certain responsibility sets in, a possibility sets in, and we just have to do our best with that every day. God doesn't really care about our sins or our virtues only that we are trying. I remember somebody wrote Swami once about a very important decision, so it seemed, in the context. And she, she was saying, I just keep praying to Master and I don't get an answer. What does he want me to do? She said, he doesn't care. He's just pleased that you're asking. It's a very interesting answer. Meaning, it's, it's, we're, we're very self-concerned about the details. The divine is only concerned about the overall direction. Because to us... You know, the little, the little decision we make in one incarnation that's going to last just a few years. You know, it's like, it's so, 
if you think about all the incarnations we've had and you think about one twenty year span in this one, you think about one little decision, and it looks, when you're standing here, it looks so big. But what really matters is the overall flow, not all those little tiny ones. And where are we looking? What is our intention? Where are we trying to go? And that's what Master... See, what was happening here to this couple is that they were just allowing the weight of everyday life to distract them from the reason that they were living. And Sadhu, beware. Yeah. Okay. Tom, do you have something to say or are you just looking exhausted? Pick up the microphone and let's just give it a wild chance and see if it works. When Swami was living in Gorgon, a group, and I think it was students, but came to visit for a satsang and he got to talking to them about delusion and maya and for some reason he didn't think that they understood it quite right or he called them back the next day and said I w- you must understand this this is really important that maya is a real conscious force and you have to pay attention be aware uh, because it's I find it just so easy to n- I just don't think about Maya being a real conscious force that's waiting, like Master said, waiting to get you around every corner. But I think it's it's probably very important to, you know, you don't want to dwell on it, but it's, you, well, so what's a healthy place to hold that? A group of high school students, I think it was high school girls. You know, sometimes Swamiji felt like he had one chance with people. I sort of think that was one of those. He felt like he had one real chance with that group. They were from our school. They'd come over to India. And uh, I don't, there was more to it, but the details of it escaped me, but I know it was high school girls, and I think someone was asking him questions. And the kinds of questions they were asking were the kinds of questions that you might ask when you're 15 or 16. Oh, do we have to? Well, you know, I'm just beginning to enjoy myself. Can't I just enjoy myself? Doesn't God want me to be happy? You know, what's wrong with? Why can't I just? You know, it's just the, the natural thoughts that you have when you're beginning to fly into your own power. That's the fest, you know, the festival of light. It's so interesting. And there's the big long story in the middle about the bird. And the three stages it goes through. And sometimes, not so much anymore after all these years, but in the beginning people would sort of get tired of it. And, and so we would drop it out when we were in a hurry sometimes, but rarely. But I'm always coming back to the bird story because it is always the story of our little adventure. And the very first part of it says... Um, God says, be fruitful and multiply and share. But the bird begins to have fun going on its own power. And it really just is thinking about what it's enjoying. It's not thinking about where this life force comes from and what do I owe and what am I a part of and how can I serve. It's just thinking, whoopee, this is so much fun. I vividly remember my own attitude in my early teens and my all through my teens, really. You know, I I just remember, as we did, and I was, of course, part of the generation eventually that just repudiated so much of... um, I mean, I vividly remember being a teenager and just thinking that everything that the adults were telling me about self-restraint and not enjoying myself and marijuana and other things, they were just wrong. That's all. What did they know? You know, they were just crabby old people. You know, just the way you feel. They're just not real. You're only real to yourself, and you just do all of that. And any kind of thing that tells you that your own instincts are not correct 
at least for me at that stage, I just, I wasn't going to hear it. I mean, I was pretty serious, and by the time I was 18, I was really serious. Um, but it's even Swami said, better to make your own experience the criteria, because at least then you're on the right track. If you're just doing what you're supposed to do because other people told you and you don't have any inner connection to it, even if you might look like you're behaving better, you still have to move the whole step into having the confidence to trust your own experience. And in that sense, I always trusted my own experience from when I was really small. I just, to a fault, thought that I was right. <laughs> but, you know, if what's good about you is also bad about you. But I, I just never took anybody's word for it. I just, what do they know? I wished that they knew more. As soon as, but actually, to show you that I wasn't just a fool, because as soon as I met Swami, I trusted him. So it wasn't like I wasn't going to trust anyone as I'd never met anyone. And that's what Swami felt with Master one week after he bought Autobiography of a Yogi. He was asking to be a disciple. It wasn't that he wasn't willing to learn. He just had never met anyone who he thought could teach him. Simple as that. That's what I felt too. But what I was saying is um, about following our own ways. So there they are. They're 15, 16, and they're strong-minded kids. Some of them raised in our community. We raised them to be strong-minded. We didn't want them to just take our parochial view and just swallow it. I mean, where is that going to take you? That just means as soon as you get a little freedom, you're just going to spring as far away from it as you can. So there they are, and Swami's really trying to help them to understand that these are divine laws. This isn't somebody else's opinion. This is the way we're made. Swami's comment about, you know, the rebelliousness of my tribe and how we behaved and what we did was he, when he said, you know, it's true that you, your, your way of living is not laudable at this point because it's not laudable because it's not going to serve you. But he said, if you're honest in appraising your own experience... This will take you where you need to go. But that's the key. If you're honest in appraising, appraising your own experience and don't just become stubborn, rebellious, that's what the little bird does. He enters the stage which is called the revolt. Oh, well, I know that's true, and all my experience is really this isn't working, but I'm just going to keep doing it because I want it to be true. And so he was trying to really reach those teenagers. Listen to me, he was saying. This is not a joke. I know what I'm talking about. Listen to me. And I don't know exactly who was there. I mean, I remember a little bit. Um, I actually remember a good bit. But I think he was really, there were certain ones he just thought, you know, essentially, you have real spiritual potential. Listen to me. Because 1550, it doesn't matter. You just are who you are and you're standing on that spectrum. With, when you're, born with, you're born where you left off. So it, it really doesn't make a lot of difference. I, hormones and uh, excitement influence you, but you're still born where you left off, so it doesn't really matter. But that was the context. And he was, he worried about it for because of some of the interaction. He just was afraid he hadn't made the point strongly enough. And he really wanted them to hear it. And this is the darshan of a saint. And it was, that was, well, that was 2003 or after, because he was already in India. So he lived another dozen years. But, uh, during that last decade, he said on more than one occasion, you know, earlier in my life, I could take more time and win you to these ideas more slowly. He said, I could drop a hint now and then ten years later tell you the next step. He said, but I don't have that time now. And he began to be much more um, 
Frank is not partly frank, but also much more emphatic. Because, you know, this was his one chance sometimes and he was just going to put it into your consciousness. And even if you rebelled, he just couldn't be, he couldn't wait. And I think that's what he felt with those people. Interesting karma, isn't it? I was, um, I'm going to talk for five more minutes, then I'll give us a very short break. I'm afraid to stop for fear that everything will break. But um, I was... I was uh, reading my notes, as you all know, working on this book, and we were talking about the Living Wisdom School, the our Living Wisdom School here, and how at the end of the school year, the teachers all get together, together and every child is given a quality, and that's part of their um, graduation or transition celebration, end of year celebration. Every child is given the quality, and then the child knows in advance and gets to give a little speech. I think the teachers gave me the quality of happiness because I try to be happy all the time. And that you watch from the tiniest ones up. It gets more and more sophisticated as they answer. But sometimes the teachers affirm what is already expressed, and sometimes they affirm what might be expressed. So that a child suddenly has to consider the idea of being even-minded or enthusiastic or a good sport. And, you know, it's a... It's a it, you have to be sensitive to the children to figure out which, you know, which way is the right way. But I was thinking about that, and I was thinking of a couple of instances with Swamiji where he, he, individuals really needed correction but were just too sensitive to receive it directly. And I remember that in certain instances he would praise them for, well, you know, so-and-so you know, is, is really, really motherly to the people that she meets, and I really respect that in her. And so-and-so is really a good listener, and I really appreciate the way they listen. And they didn't listen, and they weren't motherly. But what he was doing was he was, he was just giving that thought into their minds. So when the next opportunity came, well, in as much as I'm motherly, well, in as much as I'm such a good listener, it would cross your mind that you would do it. It wasn't even reverse psychology. It was just getting the thought in there so that the individual could move. And in another case, which was really fascinating, um, many years ago, someone had a difficult life transition to make, and they had a very, very strong desire for a certain outcome. But they, were, they had trained themselves not to have any desires. So they kept trying to get Swami to make the decision. And for, for various reasons, Swami couldn't make the decision, wouldn't make the decision, and also he was just not in a position to make the decision. There were too many other people involved, and he would have had to take sides, that sort of thing. Everybody was equally his friend. He couldn't choose this one over this one. So really his hands were tied. But the other person had no desires, so they just had to keep saying, whatever you want, whatever you want. So finally Swami said, okay. And he suggested to them exactly the opposite of what they wanted. <laughs> And, and it was just, you know, a clear cut, this is what you should do. But what that did was that forced the person to actually be honest. And as soon as, you know, Swami said, do this, it was an impossibility because the desire was there. So the person said, but I really want this. Oh, good. Then. He, didn't, he didn't really, you know, it wasn't really like he cared, but he knew that self-honesty was what was required. You know, it's very, it's very interesting. And so what's required, I've started to say, what's always required is self-honesty. What's always required is to ask yourself, who am I really? Why are they really responding to me like this? 
I remember one, one person who just was always, well, Swami put it, you know, after several years, this man also didn't last at Ananda. He said, you know, I've noticed whenever there's a controversy, the one consistent factor is you. <laughs> he said, I'm beginning to see a pattern here. What do you think? But uh, unfortunately, he wasn't able to see the pattern. He had a whole reason why it was just coincidence. <laughs> but you don't get far then because you're fighting the wrong battles. I mean, it's not like God dislikes you for it. He waits. But you slow yourself down. And you slow yourself down. And you say, it doesn't matter. I'll be fine. I have lots of time. I can just do this. I can just do that. There's no such thing as karma. There's no consequences. I live outside divine law. Even though the little bird repeatedly lost everything he had, he just stuck with his program. Right? (laughs) Okay, let's take a break. (laughs) 121. Sananda Ghosh, Master's brother, told me, Paramahansaji used to, as a boy, used as a boy. Now that's a construction. Paramahansaji used as a boy. Is that right? Used as a boy. Yeah, to worship. There you have it. Used as a boy to worship. Okay. That's a strenuous effort not to split it in Okay. Sananda Ghosh told me, Paramahansaji used as a boy to worship images of the Divine Mother, Kali, with great devotion. After our mother died, however, I never saw him do so again, and he was only ten when his mother died. I think grief must have driven his devotion inside. He sought the Divine Mother in ever deeper meditation. That is really quite... There's so many dimensions to that. First of all, he was ten, And his, of course, he was, you know, born free, but the other part of it was, and and you only catch this every once in a while when you're really thinking about it. Master completely participated in the incarnation. You know, he didn't, you, you, you see, he was an avatar. He was completely free. He had no karma. But he took on the incarnation. My mind still, after all these years of trying to explain this, I still can't explain it. But you have to start with what you're actually seeing and try to figure out why is it happening this way? What could it possibly mean? I was talking to someone today about Swamiji and we were talking about the chakras, talking about, I said something about, you know, the, the vrittis, the karma in my chakras, my unlearned lessons, force things, force me, so to speak, force me to do things I might not want to do otherwise if I take my higher self versus the one I have to live with also, the two of us who are also always dealing here. And I said, but Swamiji, he didn't have any, there was, there was no karma in his chakras, there were no vrittis. And uh, there was nothing he himself needed to learn. So he was not compelled in any direction by forces that he couldn't master because they were in charge. You know, many, many things compel me. I I can see that I have greater freedom than some people on the planet, but compared to actual freedom, many things compel me. I mean, you can sort of see wherever you're standing. But Swami, I never saw Swami compelled. Swami made decisions and he acted, but Swami entirely participated in his life. And he didn't participate from a safe distance. He participated, he was responsible for being Kriyananda, 
And Kriyananda was a real incarnation who had real adventures and he had all the, um, everything that came along with those adventures, you know, which is great love and great heartbreak and great betrayal and great determination and challenges of all kinds. He really experienced all of it. But he, it was a, it was an assignment he had taken willingly. It was something he never resisted. He, he didn't, uh, he, he, he wasn't afraid of it. And so you hear Master's 10. His mother is everything to him, and then his mother dies. And in the autobiography of a yogi, they tell the story, you know. He, he, his mother came to him in a dream, woke him up. If you want to see me alive, you have to come right now. He couldn't persuade his father to do it. Imagine, can you imagine the absolute, well, he tells it in the book. He was so beside himself. He was going to throw himself in front of a train. I mean, here he is, and he's, you know, he's not writing in that book. I don't think he was exaggerating. So that's how deeply he felt it. And then here Sananda tells us that after that, he just, the grief over his mother's death was so intense that he just had to go deep inside himself to find the strength to go on, whatever, whatever it might mean. But what I keep thinking about is, Whatever makes us think we're not going to have to have experiences like that. You know, we have this idea that to be spiritual is to be able to avoid life. Or we, or we hold back from life, or we numb ourselves to life, or we suppress what we feel. But Master uh, was so grief-stricken after his mother died that he completely changed his relationship to God. And he, he, he says in autobiography, it was years before I was reconciled. That, it's, it's just... But, but the, that says the path, the path to liberation um, is different. Is different than we think it is. It's right through the middle with courage. And that's what I always saw with Swami. I've talked about this before. He was so brilliant. And I loved his brilliance. He was so brilliant. And over all the years that I was there, countless times, everybody who worked with him at all, we would be absolutely up against it with no solution. We just, or the forces were irreconcilable, the people were unresolved. Whatever it would be, you just go to him with something that appeared to you insolvable. And you, you couldn't even exactly figure out how he did it. But just he just would solve it, just like that. He would just... He would see the superconscious solution to it. And just like last week, we were talking about how Master ran so fast that you couldn't, when he was playing tennis, he got to the ball where the ball was coming and you didn't even actually know how he got there. Swami would get to solutions that would, they weren't even like original. They were obvious once he said them, but nobody else could see it. And I, I understood when I really paid attention that the power of his of his mind was the clarity of his heart. That he wasn't afraid. I mean, afraid of, of creativity, he wasn't afraid of failure, he wasn't afraid, he just wasn't afraid. And so many times I recognize that my own processes are truncated by my fears because only so many options can be considered because I've got to build a wall around my attachments and my this and my that and my this. And then sometimes, you, you know, years later you wake up and you think, 
how could I not have known? Well, I didn't want to know. It's very simple. It, reason follows feeling. And there's just nothing, nothing frightened him because he had no karma. Karma is an unlearned lesson. An unlearned lesson is something can interrupt my communion with God. Something will justify my turning my back on my divine self. And it wasn't, and Swami would have these experiences, but it would never cut his connection. I always, I, I've begun to think of it simply as that, whereas, well, it's self-definition, you know, my sense of myself, it's a little bigger than my body, but, you know, it's essentially the, the shape and size of my body. And Swami's, like, had an open funnel at the top, so that it was all the way here, it included that which moved around and acted like Kriyananda. And so when things happened to Kriyananda, he experienced them. Just sort of like if something happens to your finger. You experience the whole thing that happens to your finger, but you're always aware that it's just your finger. Even if you smash it and it really hurts, it, it never crosses your mind that everything about me has been smashed. You always know it was your finger. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt or that everything doesn't have to be adjusted to deal with the fact that my finger is smashed. And I think Kriyananda lived as Kriyananda as just this one appendage of the whole. So when things had to happen to him, they fully happened and he fully experienced them and fully dealt with them, but he never actually thought that, that well, to a certain extent, he never really thought that he was involved. <laughs> it just happened to Kriyananda. And you know, that's what happened when he died. That was that feeling I had. I wasn't there, but it just whenever I meditated on it, and right after when we were there in Italy where he died, and we're there with his, his body just lying out in front of us, I just had the strongest feeling because he, he that, you know, he, I'll use the ocean from here, that he related to us. You've heard me see this, but it's so, he, he was the whole ocean. And then he had this little trap door that was open. And we related there. We related in those three inches. This was Kriyananda as far as we were concerned. And even when we accessed the ocean, we accessed it through that little window, which was him. And it, that window stayed open as long as his heart was beating and as long as he was breathing. When, when I was with Tushti uh, in whatever it was, February, when she died, February and March, and... Uh, you know, she lasted much longer than we thought, and she became this pulse right here. I mean, for, a, for long periods of time. And then, then her, her fantastically strong heart would just start going again. But her, her whole life force, we'd, we'd all just sit there, and you'd just watch it. And she became this breath that was like this. And that would go like 20 seconds. Then she'd go. You know, but she was still there. That was, all, that was what it was. And, and then she stopped. Just very quietly, just all of a sudden, she just, for, there's no particular warning, she just stopped. That was Swami. He was having his life. Heart was beating. You know, there was just always that movement. Then he had, uh, as Narayani and uh, the others told us, he had a spasm that went through his whole body. He began to struggle to breathe. They put him down on the bed. They kept saying, breathe, breathe. So he took a couple of more. He opened his eyes. He looked right at Narayani. 
took one more for her and then just stopped. And it was like, you know, this gigantic event that just woo, went around the planet. Thousands of people and, and within minutes everyone knew. But all that had happened, you know, just... And for him, it just went like that. We see what a difference that is? But there's no difference for any of us, but he knew it. So, I mean, just let it go. So, I think he would have gone as soon as that spasm came through, but uh, Narayani and the others needed a few more minutes. So, that, you know, he had a few more minutes. But wow. Now that, I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're here for. Why think of anything less? I was also reading Swamiji saying about how he, he, at a certain point he came to understand that it was possible to relate to people from inside of them. And he started uh, practicing, you know, just making a conscious effort. That, and I started thinking about, like, you know, I look at all of you, and we're all friends, and we, we look into each other's eyes, and some of us have known each other a really long time, and there's a tremendous, but I'm still looking at you. And just imagine if, if, we, if you were looking from the inside. If, if when I look at you, I'm inside of you looking at me. Because we're, we're all so... <laughs> We're all so clear to ourselves, and we're, we're just... I, I'm always surprised when people take an entirely different interpretation of me. You know, people have that phrase, so-and-so really gets me, is the word meaning that they understand what I am. But uh, we're just so clear to ourselves. Everybody always thinks it's a good idea. I love that. You watch someone tell you an absolutely mad plan... But they don't know that it's mad. And then you think of yourself telling someone else. I used to do things sometimes, my dear friend Durga, God bless her. She was so sweet and I was so fierce. She would watch me do things sometimes and I, I would just see her. She was so sweet. She, she never really said anything, but she would just... <laughs> and I got, I got so that I started paying more attention. But everything in her was saying, what could ever have made you think that was a good idea? <laughs> just like... Well, I don't know, it seemed like a good idea to me. But imagine if you're inside. That's why, in all the years that I knew Swami, I never knew him to misunderstand me. Never. When everybody else around me didn't have any idea what I was trying to get at, he, and I wasn't, I was making myself utterly either obnoxious or incomprehensible, he just never misunderstood. He saw me from where I was standing. Just think of that. I mean, that's really where we're going. I, I just use him as my standard, period. I, I mean, I'm not there. I'm so far there. But I don't accept that, oh, well, that was Swami. Yeah, that's right. That was Swami. And that's us. Not yet, but soon. Because why would we settle for less? All we're, post all we're doing is postponing it and setting ourselves up to suffer, which I personally am not enjoying. You know, when, I, when the karma comes around, I think... Let this be the last time. How about this doesn't happen again? Okay, what is it? Show me the whole story so that I don't, I really don't want to see this again. 
this is not fun now and it won't be any more fun when now is, you know, then, because then it will be now and I'm not enjoying it. So let's finish if we can. So I think that's it. Whew, yeah, I think that's enough for a week. Okay, thank you. We did 20, we did 120 and 121. Yeah, for John. Thank you, John. <laughs> we overcame great obstacles. There was a Reader's Digest joke that I loved where the minister was giving a sermon and all of a sudden he began to just cough and cough and cough. Finally managed and he said, I would like to announce that after overcoming great difficulties, a gnat has just entered the ministry. <laughs> <laughs>